0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Julie Douglas.
1: And today we're talking about something very universal. Um, It's everywhere in time and space. It leaks out of your face even an intentional run there.
0: Yeah, it is a shared emotional experience. Tears, it turns out, have quite a past, as we'll discuss. And the earliest written record of tears is found on Canaanite clay tablets dating from the 14th century B.C. Now, one of the fragments tells the story of the virgin goddess Anat, the sister of Baal, the earth god, and when she hears the news of her brother's death, the tablet says that she sated herself with weeping to drink tears like wine. And it's interesting that this first record that we have, or uh, this first written record of it, is detailing tears of grief.
1: Yeah, because that's that's the thing about about tears. They're obviously... Various types of tears; there are various uh, connotations for weeping. I mean, throughout human history, we've seen good tears, bad tears, true tears, false tears, manly tears. Um, I think it was Dennis Leary that had a stand-up bit about the the only time it's acceptable for a man to cry, and this was like the, the '90s to date. It. Uh, it was during a sports movie in which the uh, the main character dies of some sort of illness. Uh, and Ooh. only
0: then, only then and then. only then is permissible.
1: Yeah, only then is it permissible for Amanda to shed a tear, uh, you know, other than being poked in the eye or maced or something, obviously. But, uh, but that's the, the thing about tears, and that's one of the reasons it makes for an interesting uh, subject to discuss here is because... There's the the purely biological aspect of it. There's the emotional aspect of it. And uh, what happens when we try and and untie all of this.
0: Right. We're going to look at that today. And uh, first, we're going to look toward Papa Darwin. Um, Now, in his book, The Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals, Charles Darwin listed three reasons for the secretion of tears. The first was pretty much about lubricating eyes. The second he thought was to keep the nostrils damp quote, so that the inhaled air may be moist and likewise to favor the power of smelling. And the third is to irrigate the eyes and flush out small particles. Um, but it, when it came to actual emotional crying, Darwin was a bit flummoxed. He said, quote, we must look at weeping as an incidental result, as purposeless as the secretion of tears from a blow outside the eye.
1: Okay, (laughs) you know, and uh, you can sort of see where he's coming from there. He's approaching this from a very biological standpoint and saying, all right, anything else is just human garbage (laughs) layered over the basic machinery.
0: Yeah, it's kind of, you know, how Steven Pinker will talk about music as uh, auditory cheesecake. Uh, It's almost like the tears are the lacrimal cheesecake here. Um, (laughs) Lacrimal cheesecake. I like it. Yeah. And yet there is there are reasons for it existing. On an emotional level, and there are some really good theories out there. However, there are some really far-flung, yeah. uh, wild ones too.
1: Indeed, uh, I like to think that that Darwin, you know, he he goes as far as his uh, scientific uh, background allowed him to mm-hmm. in the analyzing tears, and then he stopped. He stopped at the edge of that dark forest uh, of the unknown. Others were very willing to just run uh, willy-nilly into the forest uh with their uh, their torches of of science and come up with their own sort of uh you know crazy theories uh particularly here i'm talking about aquatic ape hypothesis or it's also known as aquatic ape theory, and this was first proposed by German pathologist Max Westenhofer in 1942. And the basic idea here, uh, and I believe we discussed this uh, in our Mermaids episode a while back, uh, is that the evolutionary ancestors of modern humans adapted to a semi-aquatic existence at one point. So we took on various aquatic features, and the theory holds we still see echoes of those adaptations even in our modern form. Now, as this relates to tears... Uh, the basic idea is that emotional tears are seen only in humans and aquatic animals, and they evolved a, as a system to excrete excess salt. Uh, because, again, we're talking about aquatic apes living in a saltwater environment, according to this theory. So, uh, where this falls apart in just, you know, one key area here is that, uh, while there is salt in human tears, there's not enough to really, uh, make it, uh, a suitable primary uh, excretory exercise. The salt content is similar to blood plasma. So it doesn't really shake out as as an example of, oh, that's extra salt leaving the body.
0: So as interesting as the aquatic ape theory is, it doesn't really help us in our understanding of the emotional side of tears. And adding to all of this confusion is the cultural baggage that tears carry. Because in one era, uh, crying would have been seen as pious or that kind of sensitivity. In another era, it would have looked like hysteria and weakness. And uh, I'll give you an example. Um, or maybe even a cultural example right now in which it's okay. That male crying that you had talked about yeah. related to sports, Boris Johnson, the mayor of London recalled his quote, hot tears of patriotic pride at the opening ceremony of the 2012 summer Olympics. And he also described the end of the games as quote, a tear sodden juddering climax, which um, woo, that carries a lot of weight with it. Um But on the opposite end of the spectrum, if you look at psychiatric literature of the late 19th century, public waterworks were really frowned upon. In fact, it was referred to as emotional incontinence.
1: <laughs> so basically, just peeing your face, essentially. Like the the, the equivalent of peeing your pants in public. It's, it's the same.
0: Yeah, yeah. Tom Dixon, writing uh, an article called On Tears, actually says that there's a Yiddish term that the translation of crying is pissing out of your eyes. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Moreover, if you consult the Treatise of Melancholy, a 1586 tome written by English clergyman and physician Timothy Bright, you will see him describe tears as, quote, a kind of excrement not much unlike urine. So the idea (laughs) that's coming out of this is that to... To cry in public is to almost uh, yourself in public, and it's seen as a weakness, a, a vulnerability.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and we'll get into to some of that later. Just the the, the emotional um, communication of you know what are you saying to the world around you when you weep. So yeah, it's it's interesting to to see those those very the various places where it's acceptable, the various times it's acceptable, but at the heart, we're dealing with the tear. Do we just have one type of tear? Do we have two? Do we have three? Is the is the the stuff itself the same?
0: Yeah, let's look at the tear itself. We produce about ten ounces of the stuff a day to help maintain our eyes, and these tears fall into three different categories. So the first uh, is the basal tear. Now this is a thin coating of three layers that help keep dirt out. And debris in check. And the first layer is the mucus layer, which keeps the, the tears in place. Mm-hmm. The second is the aqueous layer that keeps the eyeballs hydrated, and then it pro- uh, protects the cornea. And the third is the lipid layer that's a bit like an oil slick, and it keeps things nice and smooth on the surface. Now, the second kind of tear, this, this is where it gets even more interesting um, when you look at the reflex tears, because they are reacting, and they're springing forth when they sense an irritant and they come out in larger quantities. You've probably noticed before if you've ever gotten something in your eye.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the aqueous layer of these tears contains antibodies to stop any microorganisms in their tracks. Now the third is emotional tears. Uh. Right. And emotional tears act as mood stabilizers and they contain higher levels of stress hormones like ACTH, which is cortisol and encephaline, which is an endorphin and a natural painkiller. So how interesting that you are suffering from mental pain and you have a, a painkiller that's being released within your eyeball and shedding forth and purging this out of your system.
1: Huh. So with the first two cases you can kind of think it is think of it as uh, the tier as security force. So you have your basic security force mm-hmm. just out there to keep the peace. Then you have additional security force that comes in when things get a little hectic, a little extra irritants in the eye, and then that third area are kind of like the the grief counselors, the, the stress uh, um, counselors that, that, that run out to the eyeball uh, in times of emotional conflict.
0: That's absolutely correct. All right, so now that we have that covered, we're going to take the manhole off of the skin here and go underneath into the waterworks and look at the specifics.
1: Yeah, grab Raquel Welch, grab Donald Pleasance, grab... Coolio, if you want, they think of it as a fantastic voyage. Uh, If we were to to climb into a miniature submarine and and enter uh, through uh, the eye, uh, what would that consist of? Well, you have two small openings at your disposal here, and we call these the puncta. Uh, There's one in your upper eyelid, the upper punctum, and then the uh, lower eyelid, the lower punctum. Okay, And if you look in the mirror, you can see these. You can you know, pry your eyeball, your eyelid back and, and, and notice them there. Um, that's where you're going to want to point your submarine. Follow uh, follow those. Take either, either route, your choice, and you'll swim through twin tubes called the canalicus. Uh, and these connect to a fabulous place, uh, probably a vacation spot the lacrimal sac or the lacrimal lake, as it's sometimes called. All right. And uh, this is you know tier central. Now if you were to keep going, uh there is the nasolacrimal duct that allows passage down into your nasal cavity. Um and, and this is Interesting to, to note too, because if you've ever been, you know, especially with emotional tears, but also just, uh, you know, irritants, uh, you see pictures of people who are maced, uh, uh, footage, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of nasal activity going on as well. So, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the tear ducts and the nasal connection, uh, it's right there. Now, how do the tears come out? Well, blinking and capillary action push the tears through the lacrimal drainage system. Your lids uh, move evenly across your eyes, and the blinking pumps tears into the puncta, and they're drawn into the lacrimal sac, down the nose, etc.
0: I'm just trying to think about, if this would be helpful to think about that whole process when you're trying to suppress tears. Have you ever mm-hmm. been in that situation where you're like, I feel them coming. Yeah. You're not getting out. Uh-huh. Maybe if you could slow it down and even just imagine that lacrimal lake and say, okay, we are not taking from that lake. Yeah, <laughs> It needs to keep its
1: reserves. Yeah, but the the, the water level is rising in there and uh, the dam is going to overflow.
0: It may. It may. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk about good crying and bad crying.
1: All right, we're back. Why cry? Why do it? Well, as we've already touched upon, uh, of course, part of it is just you always have tears in your eyes. If you had a, somebody that was so macho that they never had tears, they would their eyes would dry out and fall out of their heads, right? Uh, but the second area, environmental stimuli that are causing the tears to well up. Various irritants can cause the eye to, to well up with tears. Dirt. Smoke, the fumes of an onion, uh, an, an eyelash, a troublesome contact lens. Um, we've all had uh, had good cases where it's just a, sometimes it's something you can't even tell what it was. Just some sort of speck of dust floating around in the air gets in there, and suddenly it's uh, it's gushing. Also, uh, cold days, windy days, you'll notice uh, some extra tears in there because uh, the tears also protect those eyes from getting too dry. So. That's an area when you'll see some sort of weepy eyes on cold days, right? And then finally, allergies, uh, infections like cold, uh, pink eye, uh, known as uh, of course known as conjunctivitis, uh, inflammations of the eye are going to cause it to become watery, as well as any kind of physical assault of, of, your, uh, of your of your of your eyes. This can also reduce in tears if you get poked in the eye uh, accidentally or uh, intentionally.
0: Now, uh, in terms of emotional crying, we all have had that moment before where we've cried, and it felt great, and we moved on. It was this release. And then we've all had that moment, too, where we've cried, and we actually felt worse afterwards. And researchers at the University of South Florida, they were interested in finding out what makes a good cry good and a bad cry bad. And they looked at 3,000 crying-related experiments and, you know, initially they said, OK, a lot of this has to do with the circumstance at the time, mm-hmm. who the person is, what they're doing, why they're crying. But they did did uh, tease out some more universal insights into this, like the majority of respondents reported improvements in their mood following a bout of crying. However, one third reported no improvement and a tenth felt worse after crying. So they drilled down a little bit more to figure out what was going on there. And they found out that those who cried and received support during their crying episode were the most likely to report improvements in mood as opposed to those who were alone and especially those who were in a lab setting alone being videotaped because then you bring up uh, perhaps emotions like shame and embarrassment. Now, the other findings, uh, crying caused increased heart rate and sweating so the calming effect, like slow breathing, well, that out trumped everything else. And it lasted much longer than the other negative effects. And those that 10 percent that felt really terrible afterward, mm-hmm. um, those, those people tend to be uh, people with anxiety or mood disorders. And they're, of course, least likely to experience positive effects of crying. In addition, and I thought that was just really interesting, this bit um, The researchers report that people who lack insight into their emotional lives, now this is a condition known as alexitemia, actually feel worse after crying. And the idea is that for these people, they lack the emotional insight um, into a situation, and that could prevent the kind of cognitive change required for a sad experience to be transformed into something positive.
1: Okay. So, again, if you think of it as sending in the grief counselors, sending in the stress counselors, if there's some sort of breakdown in your ability to actually reflect and crunch that information then I can see where you would lose that therapeutic effect.
0: Yeah, because we've talked about this before. When you are trying to get through a difficult or painful situation, a lot of times you have to have the ability to reframe it. Mm -hmm. And you can only reframe it if you have insights into the problem Mm -hmm. that you can come back to and say, ah, okay, I have a different perspective on this. Um, But if you have this condition, then you just can't have that moment, that catharsis that would allow you that.
1: The idea that, uh, that of weeping uncontrollably, almost as if you've lost control of your, your, uh, your bladder, your bowels, right? Uh, well, there is one condition, an actual, um, condition known as pseudo bulbar effect, or PBA, um, which is also sometimes known as emotional incontinence. And, uh, according to NPR, two million people in the U.S., uh, actually suffer from this. Uh, it is a neurological disorder. I wanna, stress that where it's uh, it's neurological in nature it's not an emotional uh, issue it's all in the wiring of your brain uh, and it's characterized by involuntary crying uncontrollable episodes of crying and occasionally it spills over into areas of laughter as well but it occurs when disease or injury uh, cause a malfunction in the brain circuit involved in expression of emotion so we're talking about it appearing as a symptom of multiple sclerosis ALS, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, stroke, uh, traumatic brain injury. And the outburst uh, can often be very disturbing, uh, embarrassing to the person uh, uh, that's afflicted with it. Uh, It can hit like a seizure lasting for seconds or minutes, and it can happen several times a day. So it's... uh Again, it's quite a, an ordeal to have to suffer through it as a symptom of a, of a greater disease. But it's interesting that there uh, there is a treatment for an FDA approved treatment out there called dextrometamorphin, uh, a key ingredient in cough medicine and the one that leads to recreational use of cough medicine in so-called robo tripping, uh, which we do not encourage you to do. And its use here in treating um, PBA actually came out of its uh, out of researchers exploring its potential use as an ALS treatment. It actually didn't help in the treatment of ALS, but while they were exploring uh, the options here, they observed that it cut down on emotional outbursts in uh, ALS patients that were also uh, suffering from PBA as a symptom.
0: Now that's a scenario in which the person cannot help themselves; they are not trying to. Um cry on purpose. Obviously, the wires are crossed. But if you look at Dutch psychologist Ad Hoot's work, he says that if you're someone who does not suffer from that and you're crying, it could be a kind of social signaling. Um, He calls... Tears, highly symbolic, and he and psychiatrist John Bowlby point to the early childhood mother-child bond Mm -hmm. at play, in which he says that you know crying plays a really critical role because it communicates suffering and and engenders empathy. So, from an evolutionary biology perspective, Vingerhoets is basically saying that crying, shedding a couple of tears, is far safer. Um, for our ancestors, right? Mm -hmm. Then crying out, which a predator might hear. Okay. You know, a silent tear falling can communicate to any member of someone's family that they are suffering and they're in need of help. So he's coming at it from that perspective. And to support this, he points to the enlarged visual cortex in humans and primates. Now, this part of the brain. Is something that allows us to read really subtle uh, facial signaling in the face, whether it's a micro expression, blushing, or tears. So he says that you know tears part and parcel of this kind of um, arsenal of ways that you can non-verbally communicate what's going on emotionally.
1: And it is an instant communication. I mean, you see somebody on the, on the train and they've got some tears in your eyes, you're instantly at least curious, if not compassionate, for that individual. Uh, even with my 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 son, uh, two going on three, like he sees another kid crying, he instantly like starts asking questions, like "What happened? What happened to that boy?" You know, and and uh, and, and so you, I I definitely I definitely buy into some of these ideas of uh, the social communication of tears.
0: Yeah, and Vingerhoet says that if you look at people who are watching a Hollywood tearjerker mm-hmm. in the studies that he's conducted, when they're doing this with a friend they tend to cry and then have an improvement in mood or report an improvement in Mm -hmm. mood. But when they watch the tearjerker alone, there's no improvement in mood or overall in his findings. So that, again, points to his idea that this could be social signaling, because if there's no one around to see it, it's kind of like a tree falling in the woods.
1: Hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm saddened that the study didn't go into, look, what happens when you shed tears for a piece of media, that you do not want to make you cry. You know what I'm saying? Like example. Well, okay. Two pieces of media that I instantly can remember having shed a tear, gotten a little worked up over. Um, in Mad Men, uh, there was a character death in there that that uh, that was really emotional, and that, that that really choked me up. And I was like, "All right, Mad Men, you're a great show. You're well put together. I'm totally okay with you tinkering with my emotions." Okay. But then, uh, then once, and this was not like heavy uh, weeping or anything. But I was watching Sons of Anarchy, oh, and dear. Uh, and I had, and I had a little tear carved on my face. And I'm like, Sons of Anarchy, you do not get to make me cry. But you know, kudos, you managed to do it. But uh, I feel like there there are other cases of that. Uh, have you ever had that happen to you, where where the the media, maybe it's your mood or something, the media gets into you. When you really would rather it not uh, have that power over your emotions.
0: Yeah, it's when, it's usually more of the maudlin moments mm-hmm. that I don't normally buy into, the sort of, you know, saccharine, sugary moments yeah. that, that feel, um, not very authentic. Uh-huh. And every once in a while it'll, it'll catch me unawares. Why am I crying <laughs> about this lifetime special? I'm just kidding. Um, uh, but, you know, some sort of piece of media that doesn't feel like it's earned it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a very like. A
1: Hallmark card kind of stuff. Yeah, right? like,
0: you don't get my tears. <laughs> um, and which, you know, makes you kind of wonder, are we the only animals, are we the only organisms on this earth who cry emotionally? And, you know, the the jury is still out on this. We know that other animals cry, uh just not emotionally. So we're talking about apes and elephants, even camels. Mm-hmm. Um, last year, Discovery News reported on a spate of elephants who were observed to cry after traumatic events. For instance, quote, uh, rescuers of a male elephant brutally abused for 50 years in India claim that after the chains and spikes were removed from elephant Raju's legs, tears streamed down its face. Hmm. And animal behaviorist Mark Beckoff says that some mammals may cry due to a loss of contact comfort and that this could be a hardwired response to not feeling touch. So he's parsing it out more in in physicality, in -hmm. physiology, but that sort of boils down to emotional crying, right? Because if touch is soothing and soothing is uh, playing into your emotional response, well, then they're all connected. That being said, (laughs) the jury is out.
1: You know, at the uh, the top of this episode, you mentioned uh, the drinking of tears like fine wine. Yes. And uh, it's, we're discussing the animal world, and uh, we, we really need to point out that you do find tear vampires in the world. Um, specifically... Tear-feeding moths and butterflies, you'll find these in Africa, Asia, South America, and uh, they mainly feed on large, blasted animals, such as a deer, an antelope, a crocodile. They get in close, they drink some of that moist goodness, uh, you know, as if it were morning dew, and then they get out of there. I mean, why not? It's there. It's, it's liquid. It's drinkable. Drink it if you can and, and get out before something happens. But uh, the most interesting of the tear vampires is uh, actually a species of moth in Madagascar, discovered in uh, 2006, and it drinks the tears of sleeping birds. And uh, the, the name of the species is uh, Hemiserratoides hieroglyphica. Uh, I do like the hieroglyphica part sure, there. Sure, that's got panache. It does. It does. And in, as you'll see, this this is a creature that has some significant panache when it comes to stealing some tears. It's a, a delicate theft uh, that involves a specialized harpoon-like proboscis that they insert under the eyelid of the sleeping magpie, robins, and Newtonia birds. And then this hooks into place... And scientists are unsure if there is uh, some sort of, um, of chemical compound going on here as well to deaden the sensation of those hooks. But, so
0: they don't perceive them.
1: Right. Yeah. But at any rate, they hook into place with that proboscis, and then they slurp away at some tears. And uh, they think this is probably to, to make up for a lack of salt in their diet. Because as we mentioned earlier, there is salt in tears, about the same that you'll find in plasma. Uh, they drink it up, and they get out of there. And... Uh, uh, it's it's amazing. So kudos, hieroglyphica.
0: Stealthy stuff there. Yeah. Now those are a kind of vampire preying on tears. Um, but could you prey on tears of blood?
1: Ooh, you you would have you to could. be a very you could you would have to be a very specialized vampire. And as we discussed in our episode on vampire bats and the evolution of vampire bats, that's already a pretty pretty rough. Uh, road as it is
0: yeah if you suffer from a very rare disorder called hemolacria, which causes tears that are partially or entirely made of blood i urge you not to hang out near livestock (laughs) particularly in south america because that is where a vampire bat may detect those tears
1: indeed uh now we've known about um this condition for for a fair while uh you'll see accounts of it uh Uh, from a 16th century Italian physician Antonio Brassavola, who wrote about teaching a nun who wrote about treating a nun who wept bloody tears when she was menstruating. Modern film uh, fans probably remember this best as uh, one of the uh, quirks of Bond villain uh, Le Chiffre in uh, 2006 Casino Royale played by uh, Mads Mikkelsen. He would have a little uh, little bit of blood that would come out of his eye there at uh, particularly uh, poignant moments of the narrative. Um, But... uh, in most cases, what we're dealing with here, uh, it's uh, you're talking about uh, it being a symptom of a head injury, a tumor, a blood clot, a tear in the tear duct, um, a common infection such as uh, conjunctivitis, pink eye, that causes the bloody tear to well up. Now, there are other cases that have uh, shown up over the years, even in recent years. Uh, there are two in Tennessee that uh, that popped up where it's it's a little harder to get to the truth of, and part mm-hmm. of it is when you we we took you through the tear duct. And uh, it, it's there's a lot of very small mechanisms going on there. So it's difficult to really get in there and do a concise study in all of these cases. But um, for the most part, we are talking about injuries and uh, and inflammations and infections. Uh, there are outlying cases that scientists continue uh, to explore.
0: But can you imagine before science did explore it, uh, this phenomenon would have looked otherworldly to people?
1: Oh, indeed. I mean, just the. We already have so much, uh, and we've already built up so much supernatural wonder about blood, and then and then fair amount of uh, of wonder and awe and mysticism about tears, and to have the two come together as one. I mean, that's crazy. What's going to happen next? Are they going to sweat blood too?
0: Well, if you're a hippo, right. Although it's
1: not actual blood. Right. Yeah. But, but yeah, but even that, the early, early um, analysts looked at that and they're like, what's happening here? It's blood. What's, why is the creature, the creature a, a sadomasochist? I don't know. devil creature. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> the demonic hippo.
0: All right, guys, if you want to look further into crying, How Stuff Works has an article called How Crying Works, so check it out.
1: It's a real tearjerker for sure. Oh, nice. Yeah. And, uh, hey, for the rest of what uh, we've been doing uh, over the years here, come on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's our mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, blog posts, videos, links out to our social media accounts, you name it.
0: And if you have thoughts on ocular ejaculations, let us know. You can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Okay.